15 through 43. Uh, before we get into that, I just want to say just a couple quick thank yous just for everybody that really just stepped up in my absence. We had a, just a great vacation away as a family, and we're just thankful for the opportunity to be able to do that. And uh, I'm just thankful for um, Rachel and for Kim leading music, and Kim and her group leading music last week. And I'm just thankful for everybody. You know, I know uh, the Jennings had a big part of helping out, doing different things, different people setting up, and just Everybody that, that stepped up a little extra bit, thank you so much um, for doing that so we could step out and have a good time um, as a family. Um, now, last week, Chad, I'm thankful for him, um, stepped in the last couple weeks and just gave a couple great messages. And last week, um, gave this just a wonderful message on the Great Commission in Matthew chapter um, 28, you know, challenging us to, to take up the call that, that we've all been given to share this wonderful message of the gospel. Um, this, this message of Christ Jesus' life and death and resurrection that has paved the way for us to be forgiven of our sins, to be set free from the power of Satan, to be reconciled with our Father in heaven. And, and you know, that, that's what we've been called to do, to, to share that message, to, to tell and to teach people about the goodness of Christ. And have, you, have you ever noticed in the Great Commission that it's always called the Great Commission and not the Great Suggestion? Have you ever noticed that? Um, meaning that this isn't just something Christ would like us to do or want us to do. It's actually a, a command that he's given us. It's the very mission that we've been given um, as his people. Um, have anybody ever seen Mission Impossible movies, that, like the Tom Cruise ones? Like, there's always this part beginning of the movie where it's like, you know, Ethan Hunt. You know, Ethan Hunt, he's like, your mission, if you should choose to accept it, is, you know, dot, 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 depending on which of the six movies um, you, you've watched, right? Well, as Christians, you know, our mission, if we should choose to accept it, is to take up the Great Commission, to tell as many people about Jesus and the things that he taught as we possibly can. And, you know, for, for, for us as Christians, honestly, why wouldn't we want to do it? As Chad said so well last week, it is news that is truly worthy to be shared. The message of Christ, the message that has the power to, to transform lives, to transform people, to transform families and communities, even nations. It changes people's eternal destiny. I mean, you think about what takes place when a person responds to the gospel, when they respond to that good news about what Christ did. Just think, I want to talk about just a couple of the things the Bible tells us for people that have responded and made Christ Lord and Savior of their life. It says that we've passed from, from death to life. Spiritual death into spiritual life, we've been born again. We've been given new life in Christ, forgiven of our sins, completely washed by the blood of Christ that covers us. We, we've been brought into a relationship with God the Father. We've been adopted as His children. I mean, we were before Christ, Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath, and now we've went from children of wrath to children of Almighty God with eternity to look forward to with Him. Is that, is that good news? And say, if you've experienced it, that's some great news, and it is definitely news that is worth sharing. That's the message that we're called to go out and do. That is our mission, and unlike the movies, that message is not going to self-destruct in five seconds. It's a message that is going to go on and on and on. I believe it's a message that we're going to continue to talk about in, in the ages to come for all of eternity as we think upon the gospel and praise God for the amazing goodness He's shown us in Christ Jesus. Now, I think most of us in here would agree that we're supposed to do that, right? I mean, we, we talk about the gospel in here enough and the Great Commission in here enough to know that that's our job. But as the old saying often goes, 
Sometimes knowing and doing are sometimes two different things, right? If, if you know what I mean. And uh, although there's certainly a number of reasons why we don't as Christians share the gospel, I'll be honest with you, I think maybe the number one reason, especially among devoted Christians, people, Christians that are really serious, I guess I would say, is, isn't so much a lack of desire, isn't so much a lack of um, knowledge of the gospel, as much as it is simply like, how do we go about it? How does it happen? I mean, how do, we, how do we turn regular, everyday conversations into gospel conversations? Anybody ever struggle with that? I mean, it really is something that can be, that can be challenging for us. And I'll be honest with you, even me as, as a pastor, like, I struggle with it. I mean, it's easy to share the gospel in the pulpit. I mean, we talk, I mean, it's very, it's, that's scripture, right? It's easy to do it here, but, but outside of this context... I struggle with the know-how sometimes. Like, who do I share it with? Or when God does bring somebody in my path, how do I turn this conversation into a gospel conversation? Because like every person is different, every situation is different, and it's just it's tricky sometimes to be able to, to, to bring this conversation in without it being like awkward or, or weird or just out of place. Are you following? It, it's hard. So, I guess one way to get better at it is to practice, but there's also another way to learn about it is to follow the examples that have gone before us. And, and today we're going to be looking, as we kind of get back into the book of Acts, at Paul and Barnabas as they continue on their missionary journey. And I think we're going to kind of three just points from this passage of Scripture, and I think maybe it'll give us a little bit of a guideline and hopefully help us out in this journey of, of, of doing what we're supposed to do as Christians. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dig into our passage here. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time tonight. Thank you, God, so much for the opportunity to, to be amongst my brothers and sisters in Christ, my friends. Lord, I am thankful for this church and, and for the people that you have brought here, people that are so um, just committed to you. People that, because I know their hearts, Lord, they, they, they love you. They love people. And we as a church, we want to reach out, Lord God. We want to be better at being a witness for you and sharing the gospel. And, and but Lord, it's challenging. It's hard. There's spiritual warfare attached to it. And, and so tonight, I just pray that we, that we dig into our past here, that you'd help us to just, just to glean a little bit from Paul and Barnabas, and that maybe you'd just teach us a few things tonight that we can leave here and just knowing a little bit more, and maybe be, leave this place a little more effective than, than when we walked in. Lord, just view this tonight. Be glorified in this message. Holy Spirit, speak and, and touch each life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you remember from a few weeks ago, we left off in Acts 13 where, where Paul and Barnabas, along with John Mark, um, they kind of set off and was kind of commonly known as Paul's first missionary journey. So um, Paul and Barnabas and Mark, they were up there in Antioch, and during that time they were in prayer. The Holy Spirit speaks and, and makes it clear that, 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 that God's got a mission for Paul and Barnabas to go out from Antioch and to take off and go spread this message of the gospel. And so they, the, the men there, they, they lay their hands on them, they pray over them, and then they send them off. And the first place they go is to this island of Cyprus, which is in the Mediterranean Sea, just kind of directly west of Israel there. And, and, and they go just preaching the gospel from the, from, the, from the west coast down through the east coast. In the meantime, they run into this, um, what's described as a sorcerer named um, Bar-Jesus, this man who had performed different signs and wonders and was doing anything he could to keep the, the Roman governor there from hearing the gospel because he had seen what the gospel was doing around them. People were being saved and changed in this bar 
Bar Jesus had like these people buffaloed. He had this, this man controlled by all of his false signs and wonders that he didn't want to lose that control, so he was doing all that he could, and yet Paul just through the incredible power of God just speaks this word and blinds this man Bar Jesus and he's completely blind and because of that the Roman governor there um, Paul I think was his name he was astonished by that he gave his life to Christ many other people gave their life to Christ and like they hit the entire island I mean and, and they knew their time was done and so they we're going to see today we jump into verse 13 and the rest of this chapter here they, they move on from that place to somewhere else so let's start by reading verses 13 13 through 16 of chapter 13. It says, As Paul and his companions then left Paphos by ship for Pamphylia, landing at the port town of Perga. There John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas traveled inland to Antioch of Pisidia. On the Sabbath they all went to the synagogue for service. And after the usual readings from the book of Moses and the prophets, those in charge of the service sent them this message. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, come and give it. So Paul stood, lifted his hand to quiet them, and started speaking. Men of Israel, he said, and you God-fearing Gentiles, listen to me. So they, so they leave Cyprus, they, they end up in this Roman district of Pamphylia. So if you can remember at this time, the Romans controlled the vast majority of the known world, Europe and Asia Minor there, and this is, this Pamphylia was a, was a Roman district. And it's kind of today, if you can picture where Turkey is right there on the North Mediterranean Sea, that's exactly where they landed in, in modern day Turkey. They, they land in this town of Perga, um, and there it says that, that John Mark left them. Now, it's just a little phrase here, but we're going to see later in the book of Acts that this became like really a major point of contention, not only between Paul and Mark, but also as something that actually caused a split between Paul and Barnabas. Now we know that toward sometime later on in ministry, those two were, they were, they were all reconciled. Second Timothy 4.11 talks about how Paul was, was calling for John Mark's help because he wanted him to come back and help serve him in ministry. So we know that was reconciled, but, but it is interesting that this statement is put Put in here and just really as a side note but just something to keep in mind you know conflict amongst believers is something that can happen very very easily if it could happen with a guy like Paul and Barnabas it, it can happen anywhere just something we have to guard uh, guard well unity is something that has to be protected and just we need to keep those things in mind and continue to show grace but anyways <clears throat> Mark leaves then Paul and Barnabas had leave Perga and if you can kind of again picture where they're at Turkey is very very mountainous and so they leave Perga they head north like 300 some miles up and down mountains and end up in Antioch but not the same Antioch they left from so what's really interesting about this time is that I need to drink water just a second <clears throat> There was like many Antiochs. So there was Antioch in Syria where they were at like before this. Now they're at Antioch again, but it's not the same Antioch. So there was, they say there's somewhere between 15 and 17 different cities at the time named Antioch. And the reason for this was because there was this man named Seleucus I, which was one of the inheritors of Alexander's the Great Kingdoms. When Alexander the Great died, like his kingdom was split, and the Seleucus was one of the ones that kind of gained a quadrant. And Seleucus had a father named Antioch, and so pretty much wherever he went started a town, he named it after his dad. And so, like, all these Antiochs were named after this man's father. So, anyway, just an interesting note. <clears throat> so, in verse 14, it tells us they found the local synagogue and they went in for service. 
Now, what's interesting about the, the synagogue service, it's kind of like Jewish church, like I said. So, and it was the Sabbath, so it was customary thing for, for the Jews to do. They, they would gather together, and, and they would come together and, and, and do church. But they called it a synagogue, right? And there was a number of things they would do. Like, they would, they would, they would always start with the Shema. Anybody know what the Shema is? It's actually a phrase from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Lord, um, the, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. They would say that at every one. And then what they would do is they would read two passages of Scripture. They would read one from the law and one from the prophets. And that was kind of their sermon. And from there, what they would do is they would open up the floor for people to speak on whatever passages of Scripture were essentially read. Now, when we think law and prophets, I'm sure your mind goes to like Leviticus, like, like, like the law of Moses and all those commandments and all that kind of stuff. And like the prophets, you might be thinking like, well, maybe Isaiah or Malachi or one of those guys, right? Well, what's interesting when you talk about law and prophets from this, their perspective, it was the, the law was the Pentateuch. It was like the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Number, Deuteronomy, right? That was the Pentateuch. That was considered the law. And like from Joshua to Malachi was considered the prophets. So when they say law and the prophets, it was like the, our entire Old Testament. And so they would read something from the first five books and read something from the last... 60, 150, whatever it is, and, and the rest of them, right? And so that's kind of what they would do. And again, they would open up the floor. Now, in this particular service, there were both Jews and Jewish converts, um, Gentiles, who were kind of somewhat practicing um, the, the Jewish religion at the time. And, and Paul and Barnabas took this opportunity to um, expound on these verses that were read. And as we'll see um, in a minute, they showed them how all the law and the prophets ultimately pointed straight <clears throat> to Jesus. What I, what I find interesting is kind of the first point I want to take out of this first little section here is that Paul and Barnabas, they positioned themselves in a place where Jesus could be shared with unbelievers. And talk about one little, our first little key to helping us become better witnesses for Christ. We have to put ourselves in places where non-believers are. And I mean, it sounds like, duh, right? But I mean, but think about it. If, we, if we're going to accomplish the Great Commission, the Great Commission involves reaching people that don't know Jesus. And so we have to be intentional about making sure that we're around non-Christians. The question is, is where's that mission field for us? Now, for Paul and Barnabas, I mean, I'm sure this wasn't the only place they shared the gospel, but for them, the Sabbath was a great opportunity because they were around all kinds of people that had religion but didn't have Jesus. These Jews, I mean, they, they did all the right things, but they didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and so they were still lost. And so they would take go there, and they would do these synagogues, and they would take that time, because they, they knew there would be this time where they would get to speak, and they would begin to show them how all these things that they're talking about points straight to Christ, because it was fulfilled in Him. So, so where's your mission field? Now, for most of us that you know, go to work or, or go to school, like God has placed you smack dab in the middle of a perfect place to reach non-Christians. Almost every workplace has non-Christians. Students, whether you're in high school or elementary school or junior high or college, would you agree that there's non-Christians, generally speaking, that are in them places? Absolutely. The question is, is do we see it that way? See, oftentimes we, we, we look at work, because I did, I mean, I was in the workforce for, before I was a pastor for many, many years, and, and, and you know, sometimes you, you look at it like, well, it's an unfortunate, necessary evil. You've got to pay the bills, you've got to go to work, right? I mean, anybody have that attitude about work? 
don't really want to go, but it's just an unfortunate evil. I got to do it, right? Or, or, or students that are in school, you ever look at school and be like, okay, I know it's important, but it's also like cruel and unusual punishment. Would you any students agree that, that school is like cruel and unusual punishment? Nobody. Okay. You all must love school. I know my kids are lying. So anyways, <clears throat> how would that change though if, if we looked at our workplace, if we looked at our school, not as cruel and unusual punishment, but as the mission field? As this is God's gift to me because he's placed me smack dab in the midst of people that need to hear about Jesus. And guess what? I'm a Christian. And he's putting me here because he wants me to reach them. It, it really changes our perspective. Something to think about. Another thing we need to do is just make friends that are non-Christians. Uh, one tendency I think Christians can, can easily fall into, and it's not a bad thing, it's a great thing, is that Christians spend so much, so much time with Christians that they don't have a whole lot of time to spend with people that aren't. It, it can happen sometimes. And don't get me wrong, we, we need Christian friends. Like, we need encouragement. We, we need Christian friends to keep us grounded in the Word and keep us accountable. But I tell you what, we can't reach lost people if we're not building relationships with lost people. You know, random evangelism can be effective, but the most effective way to reach somebody is to get to know them. To get to know their hearts, get to know their past, get to know just who they are so that you can, as we're going to see in a little bit, so you can really um, show them Jesus from a perspective that meets them right where they are at. And as we're going to see in a moment, we also have to be intentional in leading these conversations to Jesus. You know, Paul and Barnabas, they didn't just go to the place where non-Christians were just so they could be around them. I mean, the whole purpose was to share the gospel. You know, I mean, that was their mission. They went in there for that very purpose to tell people about Christ. And, you know, as we get into this, it takes intentionality, but just understand that it's going to be something that's going to take courage. It's going to take boldness as Christians. It's going to require us to be uncomfortable. It's going to require us to put ourselves in a vulnerable position. It, sharing Jesus is not easy. It's something that requires faith. We have to trust in the Lord for Him to give us the strength to actually follow through and do it. <clears throat> Let's go and move on and, and read uh, verse 17 through 39 here. <clears throat> the God of this nation of Israel chose our ancestors and made them multiply and grow strong during their stay in Egypt. Then with a powerful arm, He led them out of their slavery. He put up with them through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Then he destroyed seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to Israel as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that, God gave them judges to rule until the time of Samuel the prophet. And then the people begged for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin who, who reigned for 40 years. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And as one of King David's descendants, Jesus, who was God's promised Savior of Israel, before he came, John the Baptist preached that all the people of Israel needed to repent of their sins and turn to God and be baptized. And as John was finishing his ministry, he asked, do you think that I am the Messiah? No, I'm not, but he is coming soon, and I'm not even worthy to be his slave and, and untie the sandals of his feet. Brothers, you sons of Abraham, and also you God-fearing Gentiles, this message of salvation has been sent to us. 
the people of Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize Jesus as the one the prophet had spoken about. Instead, they condemned him. And in doing this, they fulfilled, they fulfilled the prophet's word that is read on every Sabbath. They found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyways. When they had done all that the prophecy said about him, they, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And over a period of many days, he appeared to those who had gone with him from Galilee into Jerusalem. And they are his witnesses to the people of Israel. And now we are here to bring you this good news, the promise that was made to our ancestors. And God has now fulfilled it for us, their descendants, by raising Jesus this is what the second psalm says about Jesus. You are my son, and today I become your father. For God has promised to raise him from the dead, not leaving him to rot in the grave. And he said, I will give you the sacred blessing I promised to David. Another psalm explains it more fully. You will not allow your holy one to rot in the grave. This is not a reverence to David, for David had done the will of God in his own generation. He died and he was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. No, it was a reference to someone else. Someone whom Jesus raised, who, who God raised, and whose body did not decay. And he says, brothers, listen. We are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. And everyone who believes in him is declared right with God, something the law of Moses could never do. This was his response. So if you can picture Paul in the midst of synagogue, right, in the midst of church, all this other stuff is done, and it says, anybody got anything to say? Paul stands up, I do, and this is what he says. Now, it's, I find it interesting the way he did what he did here, right? So, he, he kind of spoke in, in, like, things that weren't, like, super, like, theologically deep, no crazy biblical doctrine, like, he, he talked to them on common ground. He, he talked to them about their history, about things they would have known. I mean, Paul focused on two kind of major themes that pretty much all Jews kind of hung their hats on at the time, so to speak, so uh, he, it really kind of defined who the Jews were. One of them was that he talked to them about how they were God's chosen people. He reminded them how God led them out of, out of Egypt when they were slaves in Egypt so many years before that, and how he, he led them into the promised land and conquered what was known as Canaan, um, which we kind of know today as modern-day Israel. He, and he talked about how they took 450 years, and that breakdown is like they spent 400 years in Egypt, they spent 40 years wandering around in the desert because they sinned, and then like 10 years where Joshua led them into Canaan and conquered the, 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 the lands that were in there. And he went from there to like this other major point in Israel history, which was King David. I mean, King David was the most revered king in, in Israel's history. And so Paul started reminding them about uh, how God appointed judges to rule over them until the prophet Samuel anointed King Saul. Um, if you know anything about that history, he was Israel's first king, and yet he was definitely not God's choicest king. In fact, up to that point, God was their king. And the, the, the fact that they kept begging for a king, the whole big point of that story was that they in them wanting a human king, it was an act of rejection of God as king, which God gave them what they want. In the end, it, it, it turned out to be disastrous. I mean, they, they lost their nation. I mean, it was just, they led them into evil and all kinds of, of crazy things. But after King Saul died, God put his man in. If you're going to have a king, I'm going to give you my man. And this man was King David. And David is described here as a man after his own heart. And at the end of the day, 
in, in David's life, he was a man that pursued God his whole life, and, and God made a covenant with David that, 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 that he would have an heir on the throne of Israel forever. Like, like literally for, for all of eternity. Now, that seems probably crazy for these people to hear because they hadn't had a king on the throne in centuries. Um, you know, the last king had died off 400 years before this. You know, they'd just been taken over by Babylon and Persia and then Greece and now Rome, but they haven't had a king on there. And, and, and yet, Paul goes here and, and reminds them of this promise that God gave them that, that, that David would have an heir on the throne. You get down to verse 23 and he reminds them that uh, this is true. And the fulfillment of this is, in fact, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who he would call the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And so, like, he makes these couple points. And, and the reason he's doing this is because he's really just meeting them right where they're at. And, and he's not only meeting them right where they're at with a couple of common stories, he, he's making a couple spiritual points while he's at it. Like, he could have just said King David, but he talked about King David, the one who... God said, this is a man who is after my own heart. And, and it's interesting because you think about the gospel, you think about a relationship with the Lord, it's not just about do's and don'ts. It's not just about religion. It's about a God who wants a relationship. It's about a God that desires our heart. David was the example of that. He a man after mine own heart, I, I, don't, I don't even know that it means that David was just like God. I don't believe that, I mean, maybe to an extent. I really personally believe that when it says that David was a man after God's own heart, it, he, it means he was a man who sought after God. He pursued God his whole life. He pursued righteousness. He was certainly imperfect. He made lots and lots of mistakes. But his entire life, God was at the center of his life. He was the center focus. He, he loved the Lord. Read the Psalms. I mean, the Psalms are beautiful, just talking about his relationship with God and, and how it's not just God's way off in the distance and we're way down here. No, it was a, a real relationship. And you think about the gospel, that's where Paul's leading these people to understand that it's not just about do's and don'ts. It's not just about coming to synagogue or coming to church. It's about a relationship that God wants with us. Now, when he also spoke about David... And, and, to, and talked about this idea that he would always have an heir, he was hitting a common mindset of the Jew of the day that they knew that, that they believed anyways that this heir of David, this, this one that would come back to the throne, would be the Messiah. Like, they were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for this Savior that would come rescue them from their oppressors and everything else. But like most of the Jews of the day that missed it, they missed it because they were looking for a different kind of Messiah. They were looking for the, somebody that was going to be this military leader who was going to come rescue them from Rome, and yet Jesus wasn't a military leader, at least not then. He will be someday, but, but then he was the one who came to save us from our sins. He was a greater Savior than saving from Rome. He was somebody that was saving them from eternity, separated from God. And again, in verse 23, he makes this point that, that you are looking for the Messiah, and Jesus is it. Look to Jesus. Look no further. The Messiah has already come. And so after Paul finished his history lesson of the distant past, he kind of brought this conversation to more recent events concerning Christ himself. And he started off by talking about the ministry of John the Baptist, who we know was to be the, the forerunner of Christ, the one who kind of paved the way for Jesus. Now, why would Paul bring this guy up? Because this had to do with the conversation of Jesus being Messiah. 
Jesus being the Christ, which Christ and Messiah basically means the same exact thing. One's Greek, one's, one's Hebrew. But anyways, when, when you think about John the Baptist, there were prophecies about him in the Old Testament as well. That, that this, this forerunner of Christ, when he would come, that he would be the one to introduce the Messiah. And so Paul says, look, not only has Jesus come, but to prove it, his forerunner has also come, which is John the Baptist. And Jesus himself said this in Matthew 11, chapter 11 and verse 14. Jesus said this, if you're willing to accept what I say, he, speaking of John the Baptist, is Elijah, the one the prophet said would come. It's a prophecy from Malachi 4, 5, spoken 400 some years before that. Now, not only do you talk about John as, as being kind of the forerunner of Christ, notice what he said about John's message. This is going to come important here in a minute too. His message was a message of repentance. When John the Baptist came, he looked at all these Jews who were going to synagogue, following the law, doing all the right things, and he says, you people's hearts are far from God. You need to repent and be baptized. That was John's message. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, right? Now, and at the end of John's ministry, you know, although he was a great man, he said to himself, look, I'm not the Messiah. And in fact, he says, no, in fact, the Messiah is so far above me, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Seems pretty humble, but there's a historical piece to this that I didn't even know until this week. But let me read you this. This is from uh, one of my commentators I read, David Yusick. And he says this, this statement shows that John knew Jesus was high above him. In that day, it was not uncommon for a great teacher to have disciples follow him, and it was expected that disciples would serve the teacher in various ways. Well, this arrangement came to be abused, so the leading rabbis of the day established certain things that were considered to be too demeaning for a teacher to expect of his disciple. Um, and, and it was decided that for a teacher to expect his disciple to undo the straps of his sandal was too much. It was too demeaning for the servant, right? So there was laws in place in John and Jesus' day that said a, a disciple, it was too demeaning for them to bend down and untie their sandal, and yet John and insisted, I'm not even worthy to untie a sandal. I mean, it's kind of a cool little historical note. I mean, they would say, again, like the, 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 the rabbis would say, no, it's too demeaning for you to do that. And he's like, I'm not even worthy to do that. That's how John the Baptist looked at Jesus. He knew Jesus was the Savior. He knew Jesus was the Messiah to come. He said so in John 1.29, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew it, and he said it. And so Paul, he, he talks about their ancient history, brings it closer to home with, with, with John the Baptist, and, and, he, and, he, and he gets to verse 26, and I just love what he says here. He's like, look, this, this Messiah isn't just a Jewish Messiah. Because remember, in this, in this group of people in synagogue, there were Jews, and then there were also Gentiles that were God-fearing people, but not really Christians either, right? And notice what he says here in verse 26. He calls them all brothers, and he says, you sons of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, this message of salvation has been sent to who? To us. To the Jew and the non-Jew alike. It, 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 as Jesus said in John 3.16, for God so loved the Jew? No. For God so loved the world. Paul made it, he wanted these people to understand that, that Jesus wasn't just for the Jew. Jesus was for, for all people. But then he goes into the reality of what happened to Jesus. Although he was Savior, he was rejected. 
rejected by the people in Jerusalem, rejected by the ones that should have recognized him, and he was unjustly murdered on a cross. And yet, isn't it amazing that even that was part of God's plan? He goes back into verse 27 and he says, look, doing this, they fulfilled the prophet's words that are read every Sabbath. Remember, they would read from the law and the prophets. You know how many passages of Scripture in the Old Testament point to Jesus? Huge number of them. I mean, in the Old Testament, the prophets, like, like they have prophecies about the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, it's all about him. It's despised, rejected. You know, he's going to bear our sins and all these different things. I mean, it was in there. They read those things and they just didn't see them. Verse 29 says, when they had done all the prophecies they said about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. And I mean, that, that's some rough news. Like, y'all missed it too. He was here. But then he gets to verse 30 and 31. He's like, look, Let's get to the good part. And he talks about how Christ rose from the dead. And he's like, look, not only, not only did he rise from the dead, but there's proof. You ever hear those guys like Peter and John? Those guys down in Jerusalem that are, that, that are doing all those miracles, that are healing lame people and blind people and everything else? Look, they were his disciples. They saw him with their physical eyes. They saw him die. They saw him alive again. I mean, think about it. If it wasn't true, why would they be putting their lives on the line? I mean, their, their brother James had already been murdered. Wouldn't you think they would just quit? No, they're, they're still telling people about Jesus because Jesus is alive. They know that it's true. Verse 32, he's like, we're here to tell you people this good news about Jesus, about this Savior. And on verses 33 through 37, they, they talked about some of them Old Testament prophecies like Psalm 2 and verse 7. Where, where God said, you're my son, today I become your father. He's like, look, that was speaking about Jesus. When, when he was talking, the other one about how, how he was talking about that, that he would not rot in the grave. He wasn't talking about David. David's bones were still in Jerusalem at this time. He was in the grave. He, he rotted away. He just dust. He's like, no, he wasn't talking about David. He was talking about Jesus. And then in verse 38 and 39, as the old saying goes, he kind of gets down to brass tacks, meaning he's about to get to his main point. He's like, look, listen, people, Jesus is the Savior who came to make it possible for your sins to be forgiven. And he's like, you people have sinned against Almighty God. You need a Savior. And he's like, don't think you can get right with God because you follow the law of Moses. The law cannot save you. You can't save yourself. Being good cannot save you. It don't work that way. Only trusting in Jesus, Lord and the Savior, can save you. That was his message. That's an incredible message because it's, it's, it's just the gospel. But you know what I love about it? What, what I love about that message that I think is just a great pointer for us to hold on to is they, they proclaim both the message of Jesus and people's need for Jesus with absolute clarity and they met them right where they're at. I mean, you think about it, Paul, he didn't go off on some crazy tangent about things they wouldn't, they wouldn't have known. No, he just talked about stuff they knew. He, he talked, about just, talked about David, talked about Moses. I mean, these are two heroes of their faith. Everybody knew about those guys. And he met them right where they were at. He, he showed them that Jesus was the one they had been waiting for, that he was the promised Savior, that he was the answer to their greatest problem. He told them why they came 
that he came to set people free from their sins, that he, that he came so people could be forgiven. He told them who they came for. He's like, it came for you because you're the sinners you came for. He didn't hold back. He didn't sugarcoat it. He just said it. You know, as, as we think about our job in the Great Commission, we have to put ourselves in positions where we're around non-Christians. But in my opinion, one of the best ways to go about sharing the gospel is first trying to get to know the person you're sharing it with so that you can shape the conversation to their context. And this is kind of what I mean. You get to know somebody and you'll know, like, do they have a religious background of some sort? Have they ever been to church? What type of church do they go to? Are they Muslim? Are they Hindu? Are they this? Are they that? Right? You can, you, you can shape that conversation to fit them. If they're dealing with, you have somebody that's dealing with a loss of somebody or grief, like you can shape the gospel conversation around this God the Bible describes as being a God of love and compassion. Let me, let me tell you about God who can meet us right where you're at in your grief and your sorrow and your loss. If you're dealing with somebody that's struggling with anxiety or, or fear, Start the gospel conversation about, let me tell you about the God that cast out all fear. A God that will walk beside you and, and, and lead you and help you out with these things in your life. Maybe you're dealing with somebody that is in some like fork in the road type place in life, don't know which way to go. Maybe lead the conversation with something like, and the Bible tells us to, to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. To, to, to not lean on our own understanding, but, but everything we do, if we'll just acknowledge him, he will guide us and he'll lead us and, and he'll show us everything we need to know. You know, if you're in a conversation with somebody about, you know, death and what happens after death, because I mean, even at work, those things happen, right? Even at school, you ever had those conversations about death's a reality. People deal with it. People die. Meet, meet them right there. Tell them that there is life after death. This isn't all there is. Let me tell you about the hope that we can have. Or maybe you're having one of them conversations. Crazy things are going on in the world. And if there is a God out there, why in the world would he let bad stuff like this happen? You ever had that conversation? Why would a good God let bad things happen? This is one of the huge ones. Meet them where they're at. That's a great one. Start in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. <laughs> the fall of man. And start from there. That there's sin in this world and it's a reality. God gave us a free will. But you know what? Even in the midst of our sin, there's a way out. There, there can be change in this world, but it's only through Jesus Christ. What I love about Paul and Barnabas is they just, they, they met these people right where we're at. And I think in our lives, that's something that we have to do. Take the time to get to know people, to hear people, to listen to people, to see what they're going through and meet them there. Another thing we need to do in the midst of these conversations, no matter how they begin, is we need to make sure that we tell them why Jesus came and why they as an individual need to trust in him. I, I, what can happen so often is we have religious conversation, but we never really get down to the details of the gospel. We talk about Jesus, but we never get to the reality of why they need him. If people don't understand why they need Jesus, why would they ever accept him? Most people think they're good. 
I mean, most people out there think, well, I'm not a bad person. If there is a God, why would he send me to hell? I haven't murdered nobody. I haven't done anything real bad. I mean, yeah, I don't go to church very often, but I've been there. My grandma went to church. I mean, this is people's mindset. And in their, in their mind, they can't fathom that, that God would send them to hell. And yet, that's the reality of the conversations. We're going to be effective in the gospel that we have to share. The why. See, the message of Jesus is not theory. It's not some philosophical construct created to give meaning to people's life. It's not just about living our best life now. No, the message of Christ is a message about sinners who need a Savior. That's the message of the gospel. The message of Jesus is about the Son of God who came and died for us so that we could escape hell and come into a relationship with him. That's what the gospel is all about. Can I tell you something? There's no easy way to share that. That's the truth we must share if we're going to be effective in the Great Commission. But there's no easy way to share it. It's offensive. I'll be honest with you, it ticks some people off. Who are you to tell me I'm going to hell? Who do you think you are? But it's the reality of the Scriptures. You know, 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8, listen to what this says about the gospel, about Christ. To you who believe, Christ is precious. But to those who are disobedient, talks about the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It's talking about Christ. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The gospel is offensive to people who refuse to accept it. By its very nature, it's offensive. To us, it's the power of God unto salvation. To them, it angers them. Who are you to tell me that I'm going to hell? Why would God send me to hell? But that's the reality of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God of God. The, the message we proclaim matters greatly. If we, if we want the gospel to be effective, we need to tell it how it is. Now, do we need to try to be as gentle as possible? Sure. I mean, we shouldn't be jerks about it, obviously. I mean, we need to do it in love. We need to be, uh, try to share the message with an attitude of love behind it. But, but no matter how you shake it, when we share the reality of the gospel, it is a tough pill to swallow for people. But, it's a chance we have to take. Because that's the only message that brings about salvation and eternal life. Will we offend some people? Sure, but you know what? Many others are going to be saved. Many others will be thankful on the other side of the offense that their name is written down in heaven and have eternity to look forward to. Which leads me to my kind of last point here as we close. That, that Paul presented the people with the choice to either reject or receive the gospel. Let's read our last few verses here in 40, verses 40 through 43. He says here, Be careful. Don't let the prophet's words apply to you. For they said, Look, you mockers, be amazed and die. For I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe, even if someone told you about it. And as Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue that day, the people begged them to speak about these things again 
and next week, and, and many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, and the two men are, urged them to continue to rely on the grace of God. So Paul makes it clear here to these people, you've got to make a choice. You have been presented with the greatest news ever. News, news that he says there in verse 41, I'm doing something, you're going to see it, you're not even going to believe it. And that was true. I mean, God came and became man. He, he, he came and became flesh. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. And if they couldn't believe it, they saw it with their eyes, they saw the miracles, they, they heard his teaching, I see it and I refuse to believe it. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. You know, we're 2,000 years later, we've had this read to us since we were little kids, you know. But, I mean, I, I sort of get it, and yet they saw it and they were just, they, they were intentionally blind to it. They refused to believe what their eyes were showing them. And Paul was saying, look, don't be like those people back in Jerusalem. Don't be like them. They saw him with their own eyes. They saw everything and they refused to believe what their eyes were showing them. Don't be those people. You know, when it comes to the gospel, when we share it, people need to understand the gospel demands a choice. Indecision is a decision. It's saying, no, not right now. People need to understand that eternity is on the line. That, that their life is hinging on a decision. Their eternity is at stake. You can choose Jesus. You can choose to walk away from your sin, walk away from your old life. You can choose to be forgiven, to be made a part of the family of God, to have Him for the rest of your eternity. Or you can choose to stay in your sin. You can choose to reject Jesus. And you can choose hell. It's your choice, but it's a choice. People need to understand they have that choice. Now, is it okay to let them think on it for a bit? Sure. I mean, we don't do the work of salvation. God does. And sometimes it takes people some time to let it ruminate. I mean, and in fact, it seems that's exactly what happened with some of these people here. I mean, it doesn't seem like hardly anybody made a decision that day. In fact, based on what Paul said here, he, he told these men they were falling, look, just rely on the grace of God. You know what that tells me? It tells me that at first hear of what Paul said, they're like, but we've been told our whole life that we need to follow the law, that following the law is going to get us to heaven, and now you're telling us that following, doing all the religious things, you're telling us that's not going to save us? I think we need to think on this one just a little bit. I mean, to me, that's what he's saying here. I mean, he's like, look, it's about the grace of God. You need to rely on the grace of God. We're going to see next week they come back and some reject him, some are saved. But the point is, is the gospel demands a decision. It demands a decision, and we need to help people understand that. So as we close, just think about those three things, and I hope this helps you in this journey of, of, of being obedient in this great commission. You know, get to know some lost people. Get in their lives. Get to know them. As you have those conversations, pray and ask God, like, God, give me the wisdom to see the open doors. And, and take some of them conversations and meet them where they're at and, and bring Jesus right where they're at. And as you do and as you share it, help them understand that eternity's at stake. And I love you enough to tell you about a way out of hell. I mean, that's really what we're doing. We're, we're saving lives for eternity. 
So let's be serious about let's follow Barnabas and, and Paul's example and let's get busy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time tonight and this, this challenge of Scripture. God, I'll be the first to admit that I struggle with it. It's sharing the gospel is hard. It's, it's hard to, to find those conversations. It's hard not to be distracted so we can even see those conversations that are available. Oh, Lord, will you help us? God, will you break our heart for the lost? Will you, just, will you give us such a heart for people that don't know you that, that Lord, we, we shed tears over it, that our heart breaks over it? Will you change us, Lord? You help us to get busy doing your work. Give us the grace, give us the boldness, give us the words to say. Give us the faith to follow through. And Lord, I would also just like to just like to pray, Lord, if there may be one or two in here tonight that have never made a decision to follow you. Maybe some in here tonight, Lord, that have been holding on to religion, holding on to works, holding on to the fact that they're not that bad of a person. But if there's anybody here tonight, Lord, that there's never been a point in their life that they have prayed to you and asked Jesus to come into their life as to be their Lord and Savior, I pray tonight they would do that. That they would begin a relationship with you right now in this place and just call out to you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.